Good morning. I'm Allison Smith, and you're listening to Detangled on CIUT 89.5 FM. My regular co-host, Faz Bednar, is away this week, so I am joined in studio by guest host, guest star, Archie Mann of Extra. Uh, as always, we are live here in studio at the University of Toronto, and here's what we are detangling this morning. Archie, take it away. Last week, Ontario's new Premier Doug Ford announced that his first act in office will be to cancel Ontario's cap-and-trade program. Ford's also pledged to fight the federal government on its mandatory carbon tax rules. We'll be joined by Keith Brooks from Environmental Defense to discuss the political and environmental implications of Ford's mission. Last week, there was another cycling death in downtown Toronto. Dahlia Chaco, a 58-year-old woman, was hit and killed by a truck while cycling in a bike lane just meters from the studio that we're sitting in right now. We're going to be joined by Toronto Star columnist Sean McAuliffe to discuss City Hall's failure to act on policies that would make the city safer for cyclists and pedestrians. And finally, we'll discuss Friday's Supreme Court ruling on Trinity Western University. In a 7-2 ruling, the court determined that the BC Evangelical School can have its accreditation for a proposed law school denied if its admission rules discriminate against LGBTQ students. The ruling is being held up as a victory for equality. A bit about the show, if you are just tuning in, every week we make the Complex Colloquial. You can follow us on Twitter at at DetangledCIUT, and you can also subscribe on iTunes to the podcast version of this live broadcast. All right, let's detangle it. We are joined on the line by Keith Brooks. Keith is the program director at Environmental Defense, which is one of Canada's top environmental action organizations. Keith is with us to help detangle Doug Ford's promise to, quote, cancel Ontario's cap and trade program and to go to war with the federal government over its plan to impose a mandatory carbon tax on the province. Hi, Keith. Hi there. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. So we all saw this coming. Ford has been pledging to cancel the cap-and-trade program for months, uh, ever since before he was elected leader of the PC party. What was your reaction to his announcement last week, and were you surprised to hear him say this was going to be the first thing he did uh, once taking office? I mean, you're right. He made the commitment multiple times on the campaign trail that he was going to do this. Um, So we did see it coming, and yet it was a surprise because it's actually very complicated to, you know, wind down the cap-and-trade system. It's probably very expensive to do this. It's probably something that, you know, you you actually want to have a legal team and economic experts and others take a hard look at before you you decide you're going to kind of, you know, cut, cut the program down. Well, he did say that they, he was going to give his gu- or his incoming attorney general all the resources at uh, his or her disposal to, 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 to take on this fight. Yeah, well, that might be a lot of resources, right? I mean, we saw uh, $30 million he's already committed to fighting the federal government. That's probably not enough. Um, but, I mean, breaking cap and trade, I mean, companies have bought nearly $3 billion worth of permits under the cap and trade system, right? And these companies are literally invested in cap and trade. Uh, they're going to have to be compensated uh, for those permits. So I, it, it's probably going to be billions of dollars to get out of cap and trade. The smart thing to do uh, would have been to wait to the end of the compliance period, right? To wait till 
the end of 2020 when most of those permits have been have been surrendered. And and so obviously there is this financial cost, but I think a lot of people would assume there's an environmental cost to this as well. What what is the uh, uh, the detangling of cap and trade going to mean for for greenhouse gas emissions in this province? Well, it's not going to be a good thing, that's for sure. I mean, cap and trade is complex. A lot of people don't understand it well, but basically it puts a limit on pollution in Ontario. That's the cap. And that cap comes down every year. And then the trade part is, you know, they issue permits. For every ton of pollution allowed under the cap, you need a permit. So anybody that wants to pollute has to pay for a permit. That's how it's a price, the carbon pricing system too, right? And so that cap, though, it's a hard cap, and it was designed to come down each year to head to Ontario's climate change targets, which the province also put into law. Uh, so a really stringent program. Ontario had plans to reduce emissions, um, um, I think, more than any other province, in fact. And Ontario and Quebec uh, and, and I think uh, Nova Scotia made their new runs, are the only ones that have actually, you know, actually reduced emissions in Canada. Um, now we have no plan in place. We had a really good plan in place, put a limit on emissions, put a price on emissions, and also generate a lot of money to go back into other initiatives to reduce emissions. Uh, now, you know, we don't have anything in place. You know, throughout the campaign, we heard Doug Ford rail against Ontario's carbon tax. Is cap-and-trade a carbon tax? And, and, you know, if not, what's the difference here? Yeah, No, it's not a carbon tax, right? The cap-and-trade system puts the cap on emissions, a limit on emissions, and then people have to buy uh, permits, so there's a price, and that's why it's carbon pricing. Uh, a carbon tax just is a tax. Uh, it just puts a cost on emissions. So both of these are pricing systems. With cap-and-trade, you, you know what the emissions are going to be. You don't know what the price is going to be. The price is set by the market, you know, how, the scarcity of permits, what they sell, uh, buy and trade for, just like any other market. So then with the tax, you know what the price is going to be, but you don't know what's going to happen to emissions. You can only model that. But, I mean, here's the thing. Um, the premier designate is confusing cap-and-trade and the carbon tax, uh, I think intentionally probably. And, um, you know, he's vowed to get rid of the carbon tax, which we don't have, mm-hmm. but he's actually going to, the result is that we are going to get a carbon tax now as a result of this commitment to cancel cap-and-trade because the federal government has said, they will, they will make sure any province has a carbon tax if they don't have their own system in place. Well, yeah, we were just talking about that before the show as well. And we know that there's some other premiers that are uh, on Ford's side to, to take up this battle against the federal government, uh, specifically Saskatchewan's Scott Moe, um, Alberta's sort of premier-in-waiting, <laughs> Jason Kenney. What, I guess, two questions, what are the chances of them beating the federal government on the carbon tax in court? And also, what has been uh, Canada's environmental minister, Catherine McKenna, what's her be- what's been her response to, to Ford's announcement? Well, I'm, I'm not a legal expert, but everything I've read says that, that the federal government has very clear jurisdiction in this matter. There's lots of taxes that are levied at the federal level, uh, and so there's lots of precedent for this kind of thing. And I think the law is, is very clear. The government has the authority to do this. Um, and, you know, on Friday, uh, actually, the, the, the uh, legislation that enables Canada's carbon pricing system actually passed through third reading. So that is actually on the same now. day. <laughs> yeah, the same day, right? And, and the environment minister, Catherine McKenna, you know, tweeted out, uh, you know, that, that here's the laws in place now, and Canada is going to do this. They are going to make sure every province has a price on carbon because... Uh, we can't afford to not fight climate change. We can't go backwards on this. 
you know, Ford is putting uh, his unwinding of cap and trade in the same basket of ideas to, to try and bring down the, the gas price, bring them mm-hmm. down by 10 cents a liter. Is this going to make any difference in that effort? Well, it, so it, it is for about four cents a liter from cap and trade because it costs about 18 bucks a ton. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, that four cents is going to come off. But I think what people don't really understand is that cap-and-trade is a less expensive system than the federal carbon tax will be. In my view, cap-and-trade would do more but cost less. Uh, and that's because of the way the system is set up. So uh, if we get the federal tax in, that's $0.20 cents, uh, a ton. Cap-and-trade is $20 a ton. Cap-and-trade is $18 a ton. So that means it's going to be more. But also... The federal carbon price goes up by 10 bucks a year. So it's 20 bucks, then 30, then 40, and then rises to 50 in 2022. So the net effect, again, is it's going to actually send gasoline prices up. I don't actually have a problem with that because transportation is the largest source of emissions in Ontario. Higher prices are going to make people consume less gasoline. That's a good thing, environmentally speaking. But, you know, on, on the, the promise to reduce gas prices, uh, it's going to, in a short term, cause a four cents reduction, four cents, which is nothing. Uh, but in the in the, the the end result, the net effect is that it's actually going to add to gasoline prices. So, speaking a little more broadly about what it means to step out of cap and trade, and the sort of fights that Ford is taking on in. Um, in order to do this, like cap and trade is also, it's an international, the agreement that Ontario's in is an international agreement, right? We're in the Western yeah. Climate Initiative with, with Quebec and California. So one of the things he also said that they were going to take steps to immediately, uh, basically leave this initiative and to stop, uh, issuing any more auctions, right? So, are there what are the kind of battles he's going to have to go up with that like what how easy is it for us to leave that that agreement which really we just entered with yeah. California and Quebec well it's it's again it's not easy um there's contractual obligations under that agreement right and one of them is that you have to give the partners a year's notice if you want to withdraw from cap mm-hmm. trade um so you can't just say we're out and and that's it you're done <laughs> you, you, you actually have to give a year's notice um and and if we don't follow that protocol then it's it's quite likely that the other jurisdictions are going to bring legal challenges to ontario for breaking its contract for breaking the agreement that it has signed um because there's issues with their markets too right so we, we're linked with them in ontario they issue permits for every ton of, of, of carbon dioxide same thing goes in Quebec and same thing goes in California. And then if we have Ontario permits that are just floating around in the market, in the linked market, and we don't, and no one needs them in Ontario anymore because cap and trade is dead, that means there's a surplus of permits. So that has impacts on cap and, on California's system and on Quebec's system. Um, and it basically can, can, can ruin their cap and trade market. They, they're flooding the market with, with excess permits that, that nobody needs. Uh, so it devalues uh, everything that's in that market there. But, uh, California actually on Friday, I think uh, they issued a statement saying they were no longer going to recognize Ontario-based permits. So they're taking uh, action on that. And uh, basically what that means is, well, so we don't know yet. California and Quebec could bring legal challenges. Uh, they could they could decide to sue Ontario for breaking its contract. Companies could decide to sue Ontario because they bought $3 billion worth of permits with, that are now use, uh, worthless unless the government decides to buy them back. So I think no matter what happens, it's, it's going to be expensive and complicated to get out of this. K. 
Canada-U.S. relations is just doing so well lately, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> I think we, we're, we're turning out to be very good neighbors. Yeah, we should <laughs> sign so many more agreements. Yeah. <laughs> so what are the next steps for environmental defense? What are you guys going to try to push for um, as a way to keep fighting for greenhouse gas emissions reductions in Ontario? Yeah, I mean, you know, initially we thought uh, we were going to, you know, try to engage with the Ford administration and, and have some, you know, cool-headed conversations about why maybe they should reconsider getting rid of gas trade. I guess that's not going to be very effective at this point. Uh, but we are going to be looking at the legal aspects of this. Uh, we're going to be getting some lawyers to take a look and figure out what are what are the avenues we can pursue on that way, because I think there is a legal obligation. There's contracts signed about cap-and-trade. Uh, you can't just get away, from, get out of it that fast. And then the other thing that we're going to be doing is we're going to be uh, working with the federal government uh, and with the people of Ontario to make sure that there is a price on carbon in Ontario because we need to fight, start fighting climate change or keep fighting climate change. Actually, Ontario's done a lot, actually, to fight climate change. Uh, we need to keep fighting, and if the provincial government won't do it, then the federal government must. Any predictions on who Ford will tap as Ontario's new environmental minister? I have no idea who it will be. Um, you know, I, yeah. I don't imagine they're going to have much to do, however, uh, outside of cap and trade. Not much to do in protecting the environment, anyways. Yeah, you know, we'll have to see. I mean, you know, conservative, I mean, he did say he believes in climate change. Mm -hmm. He did say he wants clean air, clean water, clean rivers and lakes and whatnot. Uh, conservatives have done things on, on, uh, in, for the environment. You know, they've, uh, uh, there was the Lands for Life uh, under Harris actually protecting a lot of, of, uh, of forests in Ontario. There's the Oak Ridges Moraine was created also by conservative government. Uh, even at the federal level, the conservative government banned bisphenol A. I mean, conservatives do have some kind of environmental values. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what this administration does. We hope they do something. We hope they can find a way uh, to, you know, do something for the environment that, that meets what conservatives want to see. Yeah, ironically enough, in, it was a uh, uh, right-of-center government in B.C. that brought in North America's first carbon tax. Well, that's so right, it can yeah. be done. It shouldn't be a partisan issue, right? I mean, it's, it's all of our environment. It's not just one side of the environment and, you know, the other one's not. Like, it's all of our environment. It's all of our air. It's all of our water. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing we've been tossing around the reporters at Queen's Park is whether or not they're going to keep environment and climate change in the name of the the ministry or the minister when. So we'll have to keep an eye on that on June 29th. All right. Thank you so much, Keith, for, for joining us on the show and giving us your insights on that. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Listeners, you can follow Keith on Twitter at, at Keith D. Brooks. After the break, we're going to talk to Toronto Star columnist Sean McAuliffe about what steps City Hall can take to actually make the city safer for pedestrians and cyclists. Here is Bad Luck by Nico Case. You're listening to Detangled on CIUT 89.5 FM. Woke a dog from a running dream in this bad luck.
Welcome back. I'm Allison Smith. And I'm Archie Mann. You're listening to Detangled on CIUT 89.5 FM. That was Bad Luck by Nico Case. Next up, we're joined on the line by Sean McAuliffe. Sean's an urban issues columnist for the Toronto Star, the co-founder of Spacing Magazine, and the author Frontier City, Toronto on the Verge of Greatness. Sean's also a friend of the show, I'm told. (laughs) Sean is way off in beautiful Windsor, but he's on the line to talk about the city of Toronto and its failure to protect people and the cyclists on its streets. Hi, Sean. Hi, guys. Thanks for coming back on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. So cyclists in Toronto were rightfully shaken up last week when we heard about the death of Dahlia Chaco. She's a 58-year-old woman, and she was cycling uh, on U of T campus, really very close to where we are right now, and she was struck by a truck and, and killed. Um, so what was your, your reaction to, to that news? Uh, probably like a lot of people who cycle in Toronto kind of 
a mixture of both, you know, shocked and horror, because you and this kind of familiarity of, of of you know being in the same place, doing the same thing, just going about your day, um, and and then dying. Uh, but also not too much surprise. You know, it's like it's like this keeps happening, and I keep over the weekend. I've been trying to think like why, but why why is this the one that kind of resonates? It's just such a strange thing because a couple weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, um, another fellow was just riding back from work. I think at OCAD, and he he was killed at, in in I think a bike lane at Gerard and Jones area, um, kind of under the same circumstances. Um, but I guess you know that's how these things work. Sometimes one one of them just sort of resonates across the city and and. Um, but it's representative of, of, I think, a daily experience for a lot of cyclists in Toronto. I mean, maybe it's, you know, it was right on the corner of Bloor and St. George. We know both of those streets have bike lanes. Bloor bike lane is a bit of a symbolic bike lane for cycling advocates because it was fought for for so long. And it's like, we fought for this. This is supposed to be the safest place, you know, in the city almost to, to be biking. It's not an area where people are necessarily driving very fast. And, and then, yeah, even that doesn't work. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, that that bike lane, and it's still a pilot project, right? And the mm-hmm. mayor has not, uh, and and his allies have not, um, you know, sounded their unequivocal support for it yet. You know, there's always this, you know, risk in the future that it might disappear. And and there it is at a corner by a very very busy subway station. Two lines go through it, and the University of Toronto with its fifty thousand students, most of them on foot. Um, it's it's something that should not happen there. I think for so many of us who are cyclists, you, you kind of create this geography of destruction around in which you remember the places where people are hit. I mean, through the intersection, two of the intersections at least we mentioned here: Bloor and St. George, Gerard and Jones. Um, you know, I've lived at both of them. And then the same day, there was also somebody who was hit at College in Palmerston, which is where I live now. And so after a while, it just you, you start to feel a little bit, you know, unsafe in every part of the city when you're just trying to get to work or go about your daily business. Yeah, and if you look at those crowdsourced maps that uh, have been popping up on the on the internet, um, where, where they mark not just deaths, but collisions of, of all kinds with cyclists and pedestrians, um, when you zoom out, like the entire city's covered, downtown and suburbs, you know, this is a, uh, a problem that doesn't, that doesn't know any neighborhood border. Um, and and any part of your life uh, will have touched one of these areas that have had these kind of collisions. And even even the most dedicated driver in Toronto um, and uh, is a pedestrian at some point. You have to park the car and walk mm-hmm. to something. Um, so so everyone is actually kind of uh, ha- has some stake in this. So in response to Dahlia Chaco's death, Toronto Mayor John Tory tweeted the following. He wrote, My thoughts are with the family and friends of the woman who died while cycling at Bloor and St. George today. The death of pedestrians and cyclists on our street is deeply troubling to me. I'm determined to do all we can to make our streets safe. Uh, this was not, let's say, taken up with a lot of excitement from people. Uh, and in your column, you called his response mendacious. Why Why is it mendacious? Because it's a pattern of, of, of sending kind of thoughts and prayers, mm-hmm. which we've seen in, in other circumstances, um, and, and, and kind of grimacing, frowning, and, and, and appearing to be really concerned, and perhaps he actually is. Um, but when it comes to actually voting, um, and actually doing the things, leading a conversation, changing the culture from the top 
down um, that he could do, and he has an incredible amount of political capital right now. Nobody's running against him, um, uh, really, for the next uh, election this fall. Um, he could he could kind of pull out his inner, um, I don't know, Bloomberg or something, um, and, and, and be a real leader about this. But there seems to be this, um, this constant um, 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 watering down of, of these statements of grief um, when you actually vote um, against bike lanes in North York and vote against uh, other other initiatives for safer Toronto streets. You, you mentioned the thoughts and prayers, and uh, Richard Florida, in a, in a column this week about uh, about the death, compared the way Toronto treats these pedestrian and cyclist deaths uh, in some ways to how America treats gun deaths. I mean, is there something about Toronto's political culture that makes it particularly difficult for us to deal with this as a policy issue? Uh, my kind of running theory of Toronto for the last few years has been that we, we're kind of like this teenage city. We're a Midwestern city built, uh, sprawling, uh, lots of room. Um, you could until relatively recently, you know, within uh, living memory of, of a lot of folks, pretty easily drive around Toronto and kind of park near where you're going to go. Um, that is not the Toronto that exists today. It's a, it's a crowded, dense city um, where, where if you drive, it's going to be tough, um, like like any big city in the world. Um, but the, the kind of idea of Toronto that people still have in their in their imagination of the place is still that kind of, you know, big, sprawling, Midwestern car city. And, and the, that, that mythology, that kind of mental image of the city and, and the actual city um, collide. Um, on the street and in our politics, so uh, I, I think maybe that has something to do with um, this this really 1965 kind of politics that we have sometimes. So, what should Tory be campaigning on? What are the actual changes that City Hall can put in place that will make the streets safer? None of us is like rocket science. It's all been tested in other cities around the world who have demonstratively lowered their uh, deaths and, and injuries for pedestrians and cyclists on the street. Um, it lowered the speed limits, uh, redesigned streets, so it is uh, it, it slows cars down uh, by design, not just the little number uh, on the sign that everyone disobeys. Uh, put in speed humps when you... I, I was just in um, Europe and in, in Berlin for a while, and I've been to London and these other kind of big European cities that no one would call them, you know, you know, like uh, anti-business or anti-anything like that. Um, they have speed bumps everywhere uh, on Main streets, and um, the city is the, itself is designed um, to slow people down and keep people safe. Um, maybe uh, fun, better fun, the, uh, you know, the, the bike plan that's kind of been lingering for 20 years uh, on the books and, and not getting that much kilometers uh, built. And what about, I mean, I think it's very interesting that this particular accident involved a truck, because as a cyclist, I mean, we all kind of dread the truck, right? Because yeah. <laughs> they come up beside you and they're just so big and loud and you're like, I ain't nothing compared to this. I'm the size of its tire. I remember, um, I think it was probably about five years ago, Queen's Park did a big cycling study uh, consultation round. And one of the things they had come up with was this idea that you could kind of put this big 
steel bar along the sides of a truck so that imagine it going from like the front wheel to the back wheel um, and the idea is that you know, cyclists can't just get sucked in underneath the car or underneath it anymore and I guess this is used in lots of other jurisdictions and the province kind of like seemed like they might act on it but then totally didn't and the trucks are allowed to drive around without them anymore um, is there anything specific about the truck that we should be looking at? Oh, yeah, sidecars have, have proven to uh, lower deaths and inju- in, in injuries of cyclists, but the, the, the trucking lobby in Canada and Ontario pushed really hard against that uh, because it would cost them money, I guess. To, to, How to much? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One, two steel bars per oh, truck does right. not seem like... <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, all this, all this happens because, you know, because people on the other side organize and, and make a lot of noise. So right. I think I think... You know, after this week and seeing the mayor's once again um, uh, mendacious response, uh, I think I think people need to get stay mad and but more importantly organize and 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 find a group neighborhood group um, and and talk to your counselor, especially if you're whether you're downtown, whether you're in the suburb. You know, I'm 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 a little bit shocked that the the climate hasn't changed in the last few months. It was it was only. It was very recently that we had essentially a terrorist attack using a car that, uh, you know, somebody plowed through and killed many people. And at that time, for a few days, we were talking a little bit about how to design our cities better to make that a little bit more difficult. And I thought that, you know, perhaps that could have been a moment in which... Uh, in the same way that that some mass shootings prompt political change related to to guns more broadly, that that could have been a time when we could have had some change around uh, uh, cars and more broadly, who you know, which are killing lots of people on our streets. Like, is there anything beyond just the the kind of day to day mobilization, beyond the hard kind of shoe leather political work that's going to get this to shift or are we just kind of stuck until we can build those coalitions? Uh, I, I think we're a little stuck, maybe short of um, uh, you know some guerrilla actions, uh, which, which do occur occasionally. People um, redesigning the streets themselves, putting out pylons uh, to kind of you know squeeze cars a bit, so they don't have this kind of wide expanse to, to speed down the street. Um, so maybe maybe more of those at a neighborhood level, just uh, to, to maybe maybe show that a, a redesign of streets doesn't mean, you know, you have to park your car. You can still drive through city. You can still drive through cities that are some of the most bike-friendly ones in the world, uh, Amsterdam and et cetera. They still have cars in them. Um, so, so I think, but I think, I, I really think that, you know, shoes on the ground mobilization is, is tends to be the thing that, that changes things. Uh, and and the mayor and his counselors will, will will continue to you know be able to say one thing and vote the other way unless we keep a sustained um, uh, eye on them and 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 I don't know uh, a chorus um, saying no don't do that. Well, you're all welcome to join my gorilla truck sidebar installation project <laughs> where we uh, we get some drills and we just drive up on trucks and, and throw them on there. I'd be there for that. All right, cool. So, Sounds so like we, we all meet at the truck stop tonight? We do. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you there. All right, thank you so much, Sean, for, for taking the time to talk to us about this. Oh, thank you. Listeners, you can follow Sean on Twitter at at Sean McAuliffe. You can also buy all his books. They're great. After the break, Arshi is going to detangle last Friday's Supreme Court ruling on Trinity Western University's proposed law school and what it means for LGBTQ rights in Canada. 
Here is Slicked by Weaves. You're listening to Detangled on CIUT 89.5 FM.
Welcome back. I'm Allison Smith. And I'm Archie Mann. You're listening to Detangled on CIUT 89.5 FM. That was Slicked by Weaves. All right. In his role as a reporter for Extra, Canada's foremost, possibly only LGBTQ unit? I think so. Only. Well, (laughs) it can still be the foremost and the only. Archie has been covering the Supreme Court case against British Columbia British Columbian Evangelical School, Trinity Western University. Arshi, what happened last Friday? So Friday was the culmination of a, I think it's about, been about six-year-long legal battle between Trinity Western and various law societies, specifically BCs and Ontario's. And, and for those who don't know, the law societies are the organizations that kind of govern lawyers, so they give... Uh, law schools accreditation essentially saying okay if folks come out of your school then we will generally consider them in good standing if you know they can pass the bar and they get to go on and be lawyers and so trinity western has been wanting to open up a law school for a long time however uh, because of the way the university uh, treats its students, specifically, it makes them sign uh, what it's what's called a community covenant that bars them from doing a number of things, uh, specifically uh, sexual intimacies outside the confines of a Christian marriage, namely heterosexual marriage. Um, a number of these law societies uh, said, no, we don't want to... Uh, give you accreditation and eventually went all the way to the Supreme Court and the court ruled that the law societies could just say no. And so now Trinity Western's law school may very well not happen. But it could, under this ruling, it could still exist, but the lawyers that come out of it could not be lawyers in Ontario or British Columbia? They would not be automatically accredited. So there are still some... I I haven't gone into the details, but I I believe that they could apply individually. Um, It may differ between BC and Ontario, but essentially it, it... it's very unlikely, it looks like, that this law school will go forward. Um, I mean, maybe they could practice in Alberta, or I think, that, you know, there are other jurisdictions where that could be possible. But a but fight it, there would be possible as well, right? It, uh, exactly. And specifically, you know, this is a BC law school, right? This is in the Metro Vancouver region. And most of the lawyers would ostensibly want to practice in BC. So, uh, this really puts that in danger. And if you are, you know, a potential law student looking to go to school, why would you necessarily want to go to a law school that can't really guarantee you a place in the legal profession in your province or in the largest province in this country? The scammiest law school in British Columbia. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about the uh, the covenant, which is uh, quite the term uh, that students have to have to sign to get in? Um, you mentioned the the heterosexual marriage rules, um, which is an interesting rule to put on sexual activity at a college campus where most people are not very old and not very married. <laughs> yeah, let, let's just say I've known Trinity Western students, and they had uh, loose definitions of what counts as sexual <laughs> intimacy according to the covenant. I think the university and the, the students might differ. covenant doesn't specify the details on this? <laughs> no, it does not go into specifics. <laughs> but it also has other rules like no drinking, um, no gossiping. 
Yeah, that's right. So, so the purpose. I can't believe the law society didn't go after that clause. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Lawyers love to gossip. Um, but so, from the university's perspective, what the community covenant is is a kind of promise to the rest of the community. They are, in their minds, trying to create what is a Christian community in in an oasis of of heathens. I imagine. Um, <laughs> And and so it is supposed to govern the ways in which, you know, you live both on and off campus. And obviously, as you mentioned, the most controversial part is um, the ban against sexual intimacy that violates the sacredness of marriage between a man and a woman. And so we should be clear, unmarried men and women, they also can't have sexual intimacy. But married, uh, you know, queer couples can't have that sexual intimacy because that's not seen as a legitimate marriage, even though, you know, we kind of fought those battles in Canada a long time ago. Um, But you can't use uh, pornography uh, either on or off campus. You can't be too drunk. (laughs) Yes. You, uh, it says the use of materials. So uh, you can't be drunk. You can't use or possess illegal drugs. Uh, you can't, um, uh, steal or destroy property. So, you know, no graffiti, I suppose. Uh, but, but it's this wide range of kind of activities that, Frankly, at most other universities are kind of a given that most students will partake in at some point, or at least in the case of pornography, every, you know, few days. (laughs) (laughs) So what has been the LGBTQ's community's reaction to this ruling? So even before the ruling, what you saw over the last few years was mobilization of the LGBT community, and specifically the LGBT community within the legal profession, mm-hmm. right? It was it was queer and trans lawyers who were going to their law societies that are ostensibly there to represent them and saying, you can't allow this to happen. Well, that's right? interesting. It was, um, there, was a, there was a large battle in BC, which I believe initially accredited uh, voted to accredit Trinity Western. But then there was a huge amount of pushback from folks within that profession. Um, and and so, you know, some of the people that I've talked to in the day since the ruling, there there's a feeling of, you know, relief, <laughs> a little bit of exhaustion, because this has been going on for so long, but also a feeling that this is finally the moment in which LGBT people are really being kind of recognized and seen within law. For a long time, if you were an LGBT lawyer, there were only a few kind of um, areas of law that you could practice. You could maybe go into government because there were legal protections there for you uh, so that they couldn't just fire you based off of your uh, or sexual orientation. Or you might become a sole practitioner because the, a lot of the big law firms or a lot of the, the large companies aren't going to necessarily hire you. But now things are starting to change and now LGBT folks within that profession, you know, they have some power, right? And and so this, I do think, is a is a, a big moment for those folks in particular. And it's a ruling that religious freedoms more generally can't impine on people's freedom of expression or freedom of sex. <laughs> I, I mean, this is where that gets complicated, right? Because the Supreme Court, about eight of the nine justices, essentially did agree with Trinity Western that this is imposing upon their religious freedom. 
right? Trinity Westerns. Yes, on Trinity Westerns' religious freedom to create the kind of religious community that they desire. Um, you know, it should be noted, one of the justices, Malcolm Rowe, said, like, look, this isn't impugning on religious freedom because you're forcing non-believers who attend Trinity Western to sign this covenant. So it's not religious freedom if you're forcing other people to abide by your religious beliefs. That's more of the kind of side that I think I would fall on. But eight of the nine justices said, this is impugning on your religious freedom. And so um, what what it came down to was a balancing, right? In Canada, we don't really have a lot of absolute freedoms. Um, you know, it, the government can impose on your religious freedom if they have, like, a good reason. And in this case, the law societies could impose on Trinity Western um, because the the virtue of equality and the, the, the virtue of being able to, you know, shape the, the legal profession in uh, an equal way and give equal access to people, right? Because this would essentially bar openly LGBT people at this law school from having those seats, right? So that all of a sudden, there's fewer seats for queer and trans law students. Mm-hmm. They have less of a chance of getting to the end of that that rainbow uh, in terms of getting to the bar, right? Um, so it it it, it is uh, it'll be interesting to see if this ruling has an effect on other areas mm-hmm. where we're trying to balance the freedom of religion with kind of, you know, equal rights with LGBT rights. So what it's not going to do, and, and you kind of touched on this, is it's not going to change the covenant or how the school operates more generally. It's just stopping them from having a law school. However, they, the school as a university has other faculties, other programs, one of them being a teaching school. And the teaching school had a little bit of a court case thing going on a long time ago about this. Am I correct? That's right. So back in, I think it was 2001, Trinity Western actually won a similar case um, in which they were allowed to to have their, their teachers um, accredited and go on to, to become teachers in good standing. Um, and that was the precedent for a very long time. And this this decision does not overrule that. Mm-hmm. But it does certainly introduce some new questions, right? Back in 2001, same-sex marriage was not legal, right, in anywhere in Canada. It was not the law of the land. So there's been a significant change in the actual law. Um, and... You know, the Supreme Court in recent years has kind of been sidestepping some of their earlier precedents. You can think of um, assisted suicide as as a big example of that. And so there does seem to be a willingness to kind of uh, go with the times. And I, some of the lawyers that I've talked to said they wouldn't be surprised if you start hearing some form of legal challenge eventually to, say, the teaching program at Trinity Western. So if I were, you know, the counsel for TWU, this is really what I'm going to be thinking about, I think, is, is are any of our other accredited programs kind of in danger? Because Trinity Western is a private university, right? So it can have... It can teach whatever it wants. It can it, the students can can enroll and it can provide courses, 
but when it hits the kind of public good is when you have things like accreditation, when you have these accredited professions that have values, that have kind of, you know, ethics behind them, right? To be a lawyer, to be a teacher means subscribe to a certain set of values. And that's where I think the the law gets really interesting. And I wouldn't be surprised if we start hearing similar cases uh, going forward. And it's interesting to see these self-regulating professional bodies stepping up in this way because law societies, I mean, aren't known to do this, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. that I, in my experience, um, so I, I do think it's interesting that they that they took up that this case, and that you said that it was LGBTQ lawyers in the profession profession taking that up. And I think we could see, imagine teachers wanting to do the same thing. Oh yeah, and teachers wanted to do it back in in you know two thousand one, as as we saw, right? Teaching is a very progressive profession, full of of activist minded people um, who are often willing to kind of push boundaries, often willing to, to engage in lawsuits. Um, and, and so that could be a really important place uh, that we see next. And of course, you know, think about it from, from say a parent's perspective, would you necessarily want a teacher who was educated at a school that has these values to get automatic entry into the profession? I, I think that's a, a serious question that needs to kind of be uh, addressed. You know, we evangelical uh, students can enroll as teachers or as lawyers at, at any university uh, across the country. There's no discrimination if you're uh, against evangelical folks. But, you know, they're asked to subscribe to kind of universal Canadian values of... of they must clo- gossip and they must steal. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Uh, that's, that's really what I see as, as uh, making me a, a true Canadian. Uh, and so, um, you know, uh, the reverse, I don't think, really is going to hold up over the long term. Having these kinds of schools that aren't uh, in these regulated professions that aren't uh, don't subscribe to those values necessarily, I, I don't see that happening. You know, twenty, thirty years from now, but the road to that might be bumpy. So, how has TWU reacted to the ruling? Um, are they disappointed they're not going to have all these these godly lawyers entering the profession? <laughs> I mean, there's lots of godly lawyers out there. True. Let's uh, uh, you know. Uh, let's not forget that. But I, I spoke to Earl Phillips, who's the the head of the proposed law school. He was he was clearly disappointed. This has been something that well, he's, he's out of been, a job, I guess. <laughs> not yet necessarily. They're they're taking the time to kind of think about uh, how to move forward. Perhaps you know he 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 wouldn't say that they're not going to build the law school still. So there might be roots for them um, out there, but but you know they're not going to get that automatic accreditation. Um, so. They're they're framing this as a as a loss for religious freedom, and you know in some ways they're right. Um, even most of the justices in the Supreme Court agreed with them. Um, Beverly McLaughlin, this was her final case actually as Chief Justice mm-hmm. of the the Supreme Court. Uh, she went a bit further than the majority, saying that look, this wasn't like a minor religious infringement. She she characterizes as a much bigger one, but one that was still justified. And so you know I. I I have a little bit of of sympathy for TWU in that, you know, in a country like Canada, you can't actually have these kinds of 
um, religious communities that are completely separated off from the rest of society, right? You, you kind of have to engage uh, in a lot of ways. When you try and do that, the the, the laws of this country make can make that uh, uh, difficult. Of course, you know, I, I don't agree with them. I, I'm much <laughs> more in favor of LGBT equality, even when it does impinge on religious freedom. So what does this mean for TW going forward? They've lost one of their their kind of um, their driving forces, right? Something that's really been animating them for the last year. Um, and I think if this law school had gone through, we could have seen other similar types of programs, either at TWU or perhaps at other Christian universities. Now that's kind of dead in the water in my mind. Well, there was a line from the decision I wanted to read out. They wrote, the, the, the court wrote, being required by someone else's religious beliefs to behave contrary to one's sexual identity is degrading and disrespectful. So maybe we will leave it at that. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Detangled this week. Thank you, Archie Mann, for co-hosting with me. You can find him on Twitter at Archie Mann and read him in Extra online. Uh, I want to plug an event I'm hosting tomorrow evening. It is a Gossip Girl trivia night that I am hosting with my sister at Lucky Strike Bar. It is on Dundas West from 7 till 9. It is free. There are prizes at the bar for... Or uh, whoever out there is the, the, the wisest at Gossip Girl Trivia. So come out if you are interested. All right, that's it for Detangled. Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman is up next. We will leave you with Thanks for Nothing by Nalufer Yanya. Don't think